And we're live with our 123rd episode of Absolute AppSec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Seth Law, at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. Uh, no guests today, uh, but we got a bunch of stuff to talk about. There's a lot that's happened over the last few weeks. Um, and... Yeah, I just want to make sure that we're, I don't know, staying relevant, I guess, Ken, whatever. Uh, we're going to take it back to the basics, I think, a little bit today, talk about some client-side security stuff. Uh, there's not a ton of announcements um, on my on my list for today. Uh, I'm trying to think if we've got any conferences and stuff or stuff like that coming up. I, I feel like everybody's waiting with bated breath on whether or not we're going to do anything in person this year. Uh, hopefully we will but we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, I, I don't know, Ken, was, was there anything that you had on your list? No, I mean, um, yeah, we've definitely gotten some questions about that. Um, we are trying to address that uh, in multiple ways. Um, so in-person training won't be just like the only way that we address that. That's all I'll say for now. And when other events unfold that are positive and good, uh, you know, we'll talk about them then. But in the meantime, just know that we're working on ways to solve that. So because, um, you know, like it's interesting when you and I started this, we knew that there was some need for secure. I don't I guess we, we knew there was some need. I don't think we really anticipated how much people um, are really interested in secure code review. Not trying to pitch to anybody. This is actually just an interesting thing that this is like where we're at in the field is that, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a necessary thing that people need a good methodology that's like based in practical real world. No surprise there, but the scale is a little surprising, um, I, I think. But that's probably just because the industry is growing and there's more and more people uh, around. It's becoming a little bit more mature AppSec. So um, I don't know. It's yeah. probably just going to continue. Definitely. So. Yeah. And it, it's, yeah, I, I mean, it, it really has been interesting, right? When we first put the course together and we were teaching at AppSec USA a few years ago now. Um, yeah, but it, it definitely like we want to get out some, you know, some content, uh, you know, obviously if you're interested in it and you want to talk about it, reach out. We do have, you know, slides and other things that we've provided. Uh, to people free of charge. And, and, and I think we're going to redo the website to actually feature some of that, right? Um, so at least we're starting to share that out to a wider audience. There's there's a lot of ideas that we have. It's just time and life gets in the way. So Yeah, especially as of yeah. late. Yeah, yes, as of late. For all of us. Yep. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we could probably just get into it. We've got lots of things to cover. Um, okay. Yeah. What thing out of our list do you want to go for <laughs> first is the question. Um, maybe we start with the basics, right? We're, we're going to talk client-side security today, um, so third-party scripts and everything else. I, I know a big thing uh, along these lines, like everybody always talks about CSP um, and helping protect clients against or your, your website against, you know, other content. Um, but from a basics perspective, like, you know, Ken, you're working embedded, like I'm working as a consultant right now, I see a lot of, I see a lot of CSP, I see a lot of third party code being injected into websites, um, even working on some tools that do something similar, right. But um, 
like, where would you go? Right. So if I, if I came to you and I'm like, I'm a developer and I'm like, dude, I don't know what to do with client side security stuff. Like, what is it that you recommend or what's the first thing that pops into your mind um, to secure a site? Is it CSP? Is it something else? Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, like CSP is one of those things that, uh, yeah, I would always say that's like a fundamental thing, but like, uh, and I, I think we've talked about this before, but having a minimum set of requirements for like security headers, uh, CSP, you can consider that a security header header. Um, and there's like, you know, so that there's no content type confusion. There's no sniff. If you don't want, if you want to prevent against click jacking, you know, you've got your X frame options, headers, you've got, um, like cores related, uh, product security stuff in general, you've got like, I mean, there's so security headers, you know, those are basic things removing an open, you know, like this is the interesting thing. Um, the, uh, so for the recommendations that we used to provide were such that we, we would, uh, recommend, Hey, like, uh, you know, don't show, I don't know, this underlying server technology or the framework or something like that. It gives people more information and like, I don't know. Are you still recommending that Seth? Cause like for me, I feel like you can do enough digging and there's enough like openness these days that it's, it's, and honestly, it's, like at this it's, point, it's security through obscurity for sure. Right. Like yeah. it's a, um, I, I mean, it is still one that ends up in a lot of reports. I'll be honest. Um, but it's usually more when it, when we lay out something like, or when the server lays out a very, very specific version, right? Like, so it's, right. um, ASP.net 4.1. You know, and then the, the specific build number as opposed to, Oh, it's just, you know, ASP.net or if it's just Apache that, you know, I, I'm like, okay, yeah, you can figure that out a lot of ways that it's Apache or .net just based on file names and other things like that. So, so there, there, there's still some, protections that come into it that still does end up in reports at times um mm. granted even then most of the time it's like an informational or very very low low severity finding it's one of those like ah maybe you should do a little bit of cleanup right mm. yeah i don't have like a hard opinion on it but it, i find it i guess what i always tell people is like you mentioned specific versioning but i always tell people like look when i go to a site after this many years of looking at this many websites like literally thousands of websites i can't even process how many websites like i can i can get right up to a website go to a url and i can look use inspector i don't need to do any tools and i can look at your what your cookie naming convention is i can request a few files that I know frameworks are going to have by default. And, it, and even then, like some frameworks have files in some locations that are like, well, I'm talking about like default, like 404 or like a, some public folder resource. Like even the way that that's, um, uh, even the way that that's structured can vary widely between framework versions. So yeah. You know, you might have uh, a folder located in this direction, uh, in this directory, but in this version, and then not. It's in like a named a different, an entirely different uh, structure in the, the like more recent versions of a framework or something along those lines. So, I don't know, man. Like, it's like, yeah, okay, that's great, specific versions, but like, again, if you if if you're experienced, you're just gonna browse the site and pretty much know what you're looking at within seconds. So it's not that yeah. hard. 
Yep. And honestly, sometimes in the robots.txt, you know, especially if it's like a WordPress site or something like that, it's going to show all that stuff. It's going to all be in like the disallowed list. And you're just going to know, like, there's so many ways to know what a site is made up. Of. Yeah. So. Yeah. It, it, it is one of those that has definitely slipped down the list as far as you know, what sort of protection does that actually provide? Um, and, and granted, we are slipping a little out of like, client side back to server side, but you know, it, it, it still makes sense because it is in those response headers. Um, I, I was going to pull think, up. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, no. Yeah. No, I mean, I still think it's a client in a way that's still to some people considered a, a you know, a client side control. The other things like that fall under client side control though, sorry, real quick, are like, you know, where are you storing? What types of things are you storing in the browser cache? For what reasons? You know, like when you've got, there's other things like um, we've, again, we've talked about, I feel like some of the stuff we're rehashing, but it, this is sort of like for this part segment of the podcast, we're kind of going back to like the fundamental aspect for those that are a little earlier on in their career or just maybe not familiar with this. So, um, but yeah, going back to it. So like even, where was I going with this? I'm so exhausted. Uh, for those that are watching, like I, we have a new puppy, so I haven't uh, slept much. It's like having, the sleep schedule is much like a newborn, so I'm a little out of it. But um, anyways, for uh, for client size controls, where are we going with that? Um, shit, this is this is what happens. This is what happens, Seth. I had like a whole rant, like thing set up, and then I'm just like, a whole oh, rant, and, and he loses it. Jeez. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Well, um, you were gonna pull no, something no. up while you're pulling that up. I'll. Uh, I'll try to yeah, yeah. rethink it, right? So Derek did ask, you know, uh, when we know a version, right? Server, do we hit up exploit DB to see what vulns are already out there? And definitely we do, right? Like, mm, um, yeah. that's one of those things like components with known vulnerabilities, right? Like we're always looking at jQuery versions. We're always looking at the stuff that's in uh, um, Retire.js and, you know, all the vulns, the known CVEs that are out there. So having that specific version gives us that ability to go look up things in the CVE database or an exploit DB because um, it would give us an easy path into discovery um, or pulling data back. And I've, I have found that in the past, right? Um, like an XML file that gives a specific version of a, you know, .NET framework. I go Google that, realize what the, you know, the default username and password, like admin username and password were for that framework. And it worked like the login was open. So it's like, there's paths that are out there um, and that was within the last you know month that we've exploited that. So it, yeah, they definitely exist. So make sure and look that up. Um, the other link that I just posted, it's the it's supposedly a project, right? Secure headers project from OWASP. Really, it's just the cheat sheet. I think that Manico and a couple others put together uh, that has a list of those things that you're talking about, like the cache control headers, right? Um, and I know we've talked about this for year, right? years, the client side security portion of things uh, is, I mean, honestly, the trainings that we did, you know, 15 years ago at Fishnet, Ken, like I remember talking through cache control settings um, and, you know, Pragma, no cache, all of that stuff and what's actually stored in the, the browser cache can be super devastating. Um, yeah, yeah, people like, don't really take take that into account. And it's always funny in training when you do the about cache or whatever the browser you know, option is to look at the cache and you see all the stuff in there and you do a search for like the key thing that's scary that was just cached in someone's browser. And they're like, oh wait, that's that easy to find? Like, yeah, it's that, it's that easy. Which is interesting because if you look at, um, 
well, okay. So we talk about client side security, but if you look at the current versions of Chrome, um, there is no longer an about cache. Mm -hmm. They have removed it. Um, let's see, Chrome cache. Yeah, it no longer exists. And I think it's because there have been scripts like third-party scripts and malicious scripts that are running locally that would attempt to access about cache and pull data out of it and send it other places, right? You yeah. think about some of those attacks, you think about the B framework, it, it exposes all of that stored data to possible exfiltration. Um, so, you know, the only way to get at that anymore is to jump on the command line and figure out where that SQLite database is located and pull it out of there. Like if it's become a, a lot more like a mobile app to actually access that cache data as opposed to, hey, there's this easy interface to pull that data back. And I'm not yeah. sure when when that when that actually happened, when they pulled that out, I wasn't paying attention too much. But recent, like we were teaching a course recently, we we're like, oh, we'll do the about cache. And I'm like, uh, it doesn't work in Chrome anymore, right? It works <laughs> in Firefox, but it doesn't work in Chrome. I'm like, oh, it's impressive. I mean, I remember... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've definitely used uh, Beef to show that, to show like, you know, pilfering through data for sure. Like it's, that's another one is I haven't used in a long time. I haven't had a need um, to really show it, but I, I loved it. I loved how with B, Beef, I loved how it actually made it easy to demonstrate. Like I remember I would do training and I would actually show like taking screenshots of myself while I was talking. So like I was the XSS victim and the attacker in a way. Yeah, uh, but yeah, so I'm taking screenshots and then you just like show that to everybody and it's like, what? Like XSS can lead to screenshots. And it's like, yeah, absolutely. Not, not, yeah. not a problem, <laughs> you know? There was some social engineering involved. They have to accept the, the little thing, but uh, I don't know. I don't know. It might've been Flash or something at the time. I, have to, I don't remember. Yeah, so and I wanted to go back to a few things that we didn't talk about okay. yet. Because yeah. like you covered a good list, but the things I was going to talk about that I lost track of due to either senil senility or just like sleep deprivation, who knows? Uh, so one is like we, you talk about no cache, but um, also like the why do we not want refer header information always included? Um, you and I have talked about this before, but like sometimes marketing widgets or whatever widget gets in there, you get a refer off to another site not owned by you, which is another reason to really rein in your CSP and like the third party JavaScript that you're including and really like pare that down. And if you can like, oh yeah. And like, we've had questions about this too, is like, okay, well, uh, but people still want these widgets. So how do I deal with it? Well, one way is just to iframe like hosted on a separate domain site of your, your web properties and then just iframe that. So like, for instance, you have a contact form uh, from a marketing site. Well, just like put it on its own little separate domain. That's important, right? You don't want same, same, domain type behavior. Yes. I frame it and then, uh, you know, lock down your CSP accordingly, but now you no longer have to actually have this like third party code. That's like loading whatever it wants. And it's, you're up to like your, your security is as good as the, the worst persons or the worst organizations or whatever you want to call it code that you're including. Right. So you have to you have to make that separation there and not just include it. So and but when you when you if you do actually include this kind of code in their request made outbound, you have to be aware that if there's refer like if there's an auth token in the URL or some sensitive value, it's going to show up in the refer 
on the site that it's being that request is being sent to, it's going to be tracked in their, their logs. They're going to see like all that sensitive data. So you have to be aware of that. That's something that when we talk about clients, client side controls, I'm going to call it, that's official. That's a client, client side controls. That'll be the name yeah. of the episode. Yeah. Client side controls. <laughs> and then um, this, this other one I wanted to mention was like, uh, have you heard about these XS X S hyphen attacks, like search attacks, for instance? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I figured you had, I don't, that's kind of like more rhetorical, but whatever. Um, and we, we've seen this where it's like, um, and by the way, so the way you would mitigate this is pretty easy. It's uh, usually same site, um, cook, same site cookie protections, right? We've, uh, we've like, I've even seen people start using, uh, again, speaking to client site controls for cookie naming conventions. Like one thing we recommend internally a lot is to put a underscore, underscore host hyphen, whatever the cookie name is equals whatever the cookie value is. Cause that underscore underscore host hyphen prefix is a native way that browsers know, like don't let this cookie get set or, uh, you know, set, get or set from anything other than this one, this specific domain that it's being served from and subdomain that it's being served, served from. So it's very specific to that site. It's awesome. If you don't have that, um, these XS search, uh, uh, attacks rely on um, basically using your browser to send requests off uh, to, to, to use the site to search for resources. And uh, based off of like, there's a few ways to do it. One of the ones like timing, and then you can like know if something exists or not um, and attack somebody that's actually authenticated to an app. So that's like a high level on it. But the important part is to remember like these days we have really amazing mechanisms in place. So you don't even have to think about the cognitive load of all that if you just use same site cookies. Yeah. So, um, and then, okay, I think that's the last one because you already covered caching. So, and then just be careful with like local storage and uh, all that inside of a browser. Cause right, like if you put super sensitive things in there. Yeah, you don't know where there's it is. No, there's not as many guarantees is what we'll say. Yeah. Yeah, so I dropped up a site there. If you haven't heard of the XS search or the cross-site search stuff before, right? It's it, it's almost like a uh, a sophisticated uh, cross-site request forgery attack, right? Um, so instead of you know where someone has control within that context or within that DOM, because of a third-party script, all of a sudden they're accessing Google, right? And they're looking yeah. for resources that are out there, or they because you're already logged into Google from within Chrome, right? Like, and Chrome like wants you to be logged into Google and has like, yeah, oh, there's all that that goes along with it. And so being able to abuse that, um, it's a pretty interesting attack path. Um, I don't think we, it's not one that I I hear about a lot, to be honest with you. Um, because we, I mean, we know it's an issue, but we're typically like, oh, like, let's make sure that no one is, no one can do anything malicious. Um, but that really leads us into this, you know, this trust that we have, the supply chain attacks that we want to talk about here in a little bit too, Ken. Uh, because it's all the hygiene stuff that goes into building a website. Um, and it's almost at odds from a security perspective, everything that we're trying to do from within the context of the site that we're building, as opposed to what the business and what the developers want to do, the features that they want to pull in and how quickly they want to build out the site. Um, There's this constant friction that exists. uh, That's hard to, 
I, I mean, I, it's just hard to get around, right? It's hard to navigate. <laughs> Um, yeah. I think it's a little easier for me as a consultant because I come in and I'm just like, hey, this is the risk. You guys have to deal with it. If you don't want to, like it's your it's your site to accept it, right? Or it's your prerogative to accept it as opposed to you're the one that's living with it right now. So, uh, And to that point, I mean, I'm looking at my la- my other laptop right there and I'm like, I have up a, a markdown file where I'm actually writing up for a more complex project that, you know, I'm one of the primary security people on like a guiding principles, truth, doc, truth, truthy, guidey, security, <laughs> client uh, yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> uh, document. But it, it's a, the idea is that because we've gotten to a point with, with, you know, some of these projects are so complex and there's so much to think about. And, you know, you have to figure out who owns which risk and what you can do to go put guardrails in place and, and all these, these types of things. So I actually had to put together a doc just so that we, we could lessen that friction, um, which is to say, like for this specific project, here's a set of principles based off the past decisions we've made. We can extrapolate out that these are our kind of truths and our reasoning in the way we go about approaching answering these questions. Um, and so, yeah, it's just a, it's like a, it's a doc that just goes through like uh, all the past past decisions we made, um, why we made them, extrapolate extrapolate out some some repetitive uh trends in um that decision making and like truths we'll say or principles and then uh list them all out and then let that be a a decision um a way to make decisions in the future because to your point it is so difficult sometimes um even for security people even for me man as a blue teamer it sometimes is it's hard it's like we're sometimes the especially with like i guess it's maybe specific to you know what i do what we do, which is get right, get the protocols essentially underpins everything we do. And sometimes there's, um, you know, there's friction in the sense of just what's inherent risk with the way that we work with these products. What's the inherent risk to, you know, a user, what's the uh, inherent risk to us? You know, where, where are these inherent risks? Where can we put guardrails in place? Like, and then for anything that we can't put guardrails in place and for where we can't like, you know, less in security. Now who needs to have controls over where that decision make? Do we give the user more options to make and the organizations more options to pare down and lock down, you know, features or to reduce risk? Or do we say GitHub needs to do some of that or whatever the case is, right? Like there's a lot to think about that I don't know if everyone appreciates just to build one pretty cool product. Right. Yeah. And I'm not saying that, that, that nobody, you know, I'm just saying it's hard to, if you haven't done this, it's hard to like reason to, to, to understand like all of the factors that go into that decision-making it, but it's a lot. And that friction's always there, as you said, and it's not friction between people, it's friction between goals. Right. Yeah. And like the cognitive load of all of that. So. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, I don't know. I mean, we're, like we, we kind of had this same uh, paradigm shift, right? When we, when we started dealing with mobile applications as well and mobile space took over, um, well, whatever took over, like launched. Um, Cause you know, most people nowadays are dealing with these apps, not necessarily from a browser, right? When you and I started in the field, it was all um, browser based apps, right? That was, that was basically, yeah, there's, you know, there was, you know, the, whatever the, the apps that are running on the device itself. But most people nowadays are using mobile applications and even the new, uh, 
M1 Max and Apple products basically means that all of those mobile apps are now available, you know, from within the context of the, uh, you know, of the desktop. Um, and we've fractured that security out, right? Like it's, it's no longer a simple view of I'm looking at things just through Chrome or just through a web browser. I'm looking at things through, okay, there's a mobile application that can store data, but it also has an embedded web, web browser in a lot of cases that also has specific controls that are related to it. Yes, they're all, they're all built off the same technology, but the client side controls are getting more and more complex, which means that the less that we do on the web server side of things, telling these technologies what they should do and what they should, or how they should treat the data that's being presented to them means we're leaving it up to those different platforms to make that decision. So it may be okay for Chrome, right? Because we're saying, oh, the about cache doesn't exist there to go back to the caching example. But what happens when there is an embedded browser within a mobile application that accesses that site and we didn't give it any caching instructions and they're storing that cache in an insecure location um, and that that product takes off and starts to be promoted, right? Like there's different pathways that we have to think about that we didn't have to think about um, 15 years ago, right? They, they just exist. The it, right. It's becomes the client side environment has become so much more complex than it was. And like, there's no, yeah, there, there, there's no good kind of, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but there's no good, like we talked last week about the OS Pop 10, but there's no good top 10 list of client side controls or, you know, this is what you should do on the client side to make sure things don't get messed up or don't get in the wrong place. Like we've talked about refer policy, we've talked about content security policy, but you are dependent on the technologies that exist and whether or not they implement that. Um, like, again, right, like I'm, I'm turning into a security, you know, nihilist with along with Stefan. No. Because I yeah. I think it's a, you're, what you're saying is t- talking about almost like, as you were saying, it almost sounds like a transfer of risk, like like more risk shifting off of server side and more risk, risk shifting off to the client, meaning the client technology and the mm-hmm. client as in the user. But the user doesn't have, you know, th- basically like <laughs> there's more being potentially stored, especially with heavy client side uh, frameworks like a React or something. There's being there's more data typically being stored in the browser that the user may not want. Like it would have been in the backend database, but now it's in the browser, and it's up to the technology that the person is using more and more frequently to do its job properly to secure that user's data. Then the so it is almost I don't know, man. Like I didn't have I don't know maybe you just were always so busy and there's so many things going on, but sometimes I don't take a step back and think enough about that. That's a really good point. It's like a transference of risk. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I don't know, right? Like I've almost, I almost feel like we're starting to see right. There was that recent um, virus or whatever that came out for both M1 max and Intel max. Um, I can find a link for it here shortly, but um we're seeing an, an explosion of attacks against that client side because that's where the protections don't exist any, or they don't exist or they're immature, right? You know, 15, 20 years ago, SQL injection, you saw worms that went through and tried to dump data from sites because SQL injection was everywhere. 
We don't mm. see that anymore. Now we see the the malware community and the you know putting together basically their own frameworks that that's what they do is they inject themselves. They've got viruses that run on client machines or on mobile devices that are pulling that data back out from that angle, as opposed to, Hey, I'm going to go after the server Mm. Um, because it's not protected. So we start talking about what sensitive data disclosure, information disclosure, like the, the data being presented, like all of the data being presented back to a react application and you're not uh, masking out the social security number, that's an exposure point, right? Whereas, uh, I mean, because you can't necessarily trust that the front end is going to mask that out. The whole MVC guidelines of a web application, right? Yeah, you could definitely do that. You could release the social security number to your view and have the view do the masking for you. But your view nowadays is already on the client side and you've sent that data across the wire. It's been exposed. It may be cached somewhere, like we're saying. Uh, yeah. And bringing into our next topic. No, actually, it blends into our next topic because if you think about it, how many times can you know, have you seen someone who's including a library, a package, a gem, or whatever we want to call it, into their library, into their, their list of libraries? And then that has JavaScript that is now interacting on their site and doing something. And that's how they built their site, right? That, that's fine. You know, there's, there's some library installed. Maybe it has some extra views and some extra JavaScript. And that's all coming from that library. Now, let's fast forward to the next topic, dependency confusion as an attack. So ideally, you, you take advantage of typo squatting or you take advantage of a package that's no longer even on the main package manager that people are calling out for or you take you know some some other you take you get the author's credentials you attack the author directly whatever way that you do it you override some package that's being included to builds it's being included in prod right and then boom you're potentially your javascript's running because you've modified that library gets included this is now your end to end attack you are now like pilfering data on uh potentially anyways pilfering data on clients because you've managed to abuse this dependency confusion type attack which we should absolutely talk about yes so because yes. it's it's the new hipster vulnerability right <laughs> nothing is new though nothing is new it's all it's not dude to, to why he's saying that, and we should clarify is we, 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 so we have a section in our secure code review and it talks about like, Hey, in the past, you know, like for example, one of the things we show in the course is like, Hey, with, um, I think it's Golang we specifically po- point to where, you know, it has, uh, places on github.com that it calls or it calls on GitLab or something like that. Right. You can point to a repo and have the library in there. And one thing that we were seeing, and one reason there's now like the ability to actually claim a uh, naming convention on github.com is that, you know, there was a few, I don't remember the exact names, but there's a few libraries where the author changed the name of the org that it was under and the library. And now everyone's going out and pulling out to it. And as long as nobody claims that same org in that repo name, then cool. Like it redirects to the new location. However, someone claimed it just as a proof of concept. This was years ago and was like, look, if all the package managers for Go are calling out to some repo and people like move it and it's not claimed, boom, there's malicious, you know, ability to, anyway. So we've talked about this for several dependency or sorry, several package managers and several libraries. And so it's nothing new, but 
it now has a name, Dependency Confusion. Yeah, confusion. So, uh, yeah. yeah, that was the tongue-in-cheek <laughs> of that. Anyways, I don't yeah. know if you want to talk more about that aspect and how we're seeing it pop up and all that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think we should, right? Yeah, um, for sure. And the protections that people have put into place for this. Yeah, I, I mean, there, there's some good reading on third-party web security stuff. And I, I mean, we've got friends that work at Segment and other places, like when you start talking about, you know, trusting where you're pulling content from. Um, but, you know, I think we've probably beat that horse enough for today. So, so yeah, let's, ju- let's jump into dependency confusion. Um, yeah. Right. So, so Ken kind of gave a history there of where, you know, where, it, where it first really bubbled to the surface as a huge issue. Um, there was also the left pad issue that we had with NPM, right. Uh, that simple library. This was a few years ago. There was a simple library that all it did was it left padded out, a number, right? So to a specific amount of characters, left pad function is pretty easy. The guy that was maintaining it pulled it off of NPM because he was no longer maintaining it or whatever, right? I can't remember the reasoning behind it, but it ended up breaking, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of sites because they were all dependent on this package that no longer existed. So it went out to rebuild the site and they, the CICD pipeline was like, oh, it failed. I can't necessarily pull this package anymore. I mean, this isn't really dependency confusion, but it's the same sort of like dependency you know, issues that we run into. Supply chain attack. Supply chain attacks, category. yeah. Yeah, so no one took it over at that point, but it caused these issue and it caused us to focus on uh, more of those supply chain issues. So that leads us to dependency confusion, what Ken is saying about uh, Golang, uh, pulling packages directly from GitHub uh, based on the descriptors that are in the, the their package list, right? And somebody taking over an old name for those packages and then being able to inject malicious code into it. Again, another another attack, which brings us to this dependency confusion article that you have here. So I'll let you jump into that. Yeah, so the author was basically like, hey, I can see that uh, PayPal has some of their apps on open source, uh, publicly available on GitHub. Uh, And I assume it was GitHub. I think it was GitHub. Anyways, uh, anyways, uh, so long story short, was like, wow, look at these packages. I wonder if they still exist. Packages didn't exist. It was like, wow, I wonder if I can upload packages to where they're calling out from with the same names and have them included without doing something malicious. And then also, uh, you know, letting the companies know. So there was no, it was clear that, the, the, the by the way, to credit to this author, did a great job of doing, of proving on a pretty massive scale that this is possible by actually, you know, quote unquote, simulating an attack, but not actually attacking and also doing due diligence working with companies. So huge props to Alex uh, Burson, I'm going to say, I don't, hopefully I didn't butcher butcher your name too bad, but um, yeah, huge props to you for doing that uh, in like such a smart way and really getting people's attentions without like, you know, the negativity or, or whatever. But um, what's interesting too, so that was PayPal with Microsoft. Uh, there was a .NET Core, it wasn't exploited, but there was a .NET Core library that was being included that he could have, or she, actually, I'm not sure if Alex is a, whatever. This person um, uh, 
uh, had, sorry, I'm off track now. This person had um, found that they could take over that package and it would be included in the actual .NET Core build, which was, I mean, you want to talk about attacking people at the source. That's the way to do it. I mean, that's yeah. amazing. Like, again, huge props to you. That was fantastic. Um, yeah. So then, I mean, there were a couple other companies listed, but again, this goes back to the same types of things. Like the package might not be there anymore, but we're pointing to it on some location where it could be a package registry, like a legitimate, like a, like a Ruby gems or a NuGet, uh, you know, sort of central main NPMs, main repository, whatever could just not exist anymore. It could be a, um, uh, a problem where, like I said, the author gets attacked. It could be, some naming convention issue, but the way that people are for the fix, uh, there's a few things that the author talks about. And one of the ones I wanted to point to real quick, Seth, was how Bundler is doing it. So there are ways you can you can say, look, I'm only going to host all my packages on some vetted, um, you know, some vetted uh, package re or some vetted repository, uh, package hosting uh, site. Package repository. Yeah. Yeah, man, I am. Artifactory um, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, artifactory, whatever it might be. That's one way. But I like what they did. There's two things they did. One was, and this is, again, this is Bundler. So if you're not familiar with Bundler in the, the Ruby environment, I know, I know, Ruby. In the Ruby environment, there That's is a, uh, <laughs> a Bundler. Yeah, it's still a thing. There's a, a bundler tool and that's what you use. It's like, it's like a pip, right? For Python. Um, so this is how you, or yarn for NPM stuff. Um, this is a way to, you know, manage all of your packages, the installations and keeping it locked in at a certain version and all that stuff. So what bundler did was, first of all, they work with, I think it's diligent.io, I want to say, but I'm going to post the link here in a second um, to, to, to detect uh, malicious packages. And this was actually that package that uh, Alex put out there was detected by Bundler. So that's interesting. I'm putting the, the link there. So it was detected as a malicious um, package. But the other thing they do, which I really like is, so inside of a the the gem file, you, you know, a gem file being like the uh, an analogous to uh, package.json or, uh, you know, any, any number of the the... <laughs> can't even remember anything right now. <laughs> uh, any number of the package things that I can't remember, like requirements.txt, whatever it might be. So anyways, uh, where was I going with that? Right, so inside that code block, you would say, and you see the example in the article I posted, it's basically like, here's for this website, do. So it's like, you know, some site, do, end. And within that little block is where you put all the gems that you want to be pulled from that location, which I think is really nice. And the reason I say it is, it's very common to have like, I need to call out to Ruby gems for these packages. I need to call out to maybe our internal package management system for our special forks of these libraries. Maybe I need to call out somewhere else for some other libraries. So that's pretty common. And this is a nice way to say, look, for each of these packages, I don't want you to get confused on where you're calling out for. Because, you know, somebody, we could be for instance, we could be calling an internal like library, that library gets yanked and now we're looking at Ruby gems for it. And Ruby gems actually has the same naming convention package. And we're like screwed because now some random library you didn't intend to uh, include is getting called in. And this is just a nice way to block it out where you're gonna get those libraries installed from. Yep. Yeah. 
Yeah. It, it, I mean, this goes hand in hand with the client side controls that we're talking about for third party scripts on sites as well. Right. The, kind of that, that trust issue that um, you are presenting, right. You've got this trust surface that, Hey, I think that this package coming from this side is what is, is what it is, or is content that can be run within the context of my application, right? Whether that's uh, my it, within my CI/CD build pipeline, whether that's when the, within the web browser itself, if yeah, if the if the control that's implementing or pulling that code down is confused, uh, then it's going to cause problems. That's that's, that's really what it boils down to. <laughs> you, you've got to. You make it sound so simple with your fancy <laughs> magic words. My, if it's confused, <laughs> there's going to be problems. I, yeah, I don't. I don't know what how else to 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 frame that. Um, yeah. But again, it's the it's the trust issues that we always talk about, um, like the exploitation of malicious code or the exploitation of vulnerabilities always seems go seems to go back to trust, right? The user trusts the browser, the browser trusts the server, you know, the server trusts the user, and anywhere that we can exploit it in this chain causes causes something bad to happen is realistically what I'm yeah, where I'm going with that. Um, so bundler, just so I, I, I understand, right? Like and this is oh this is from this year as well. I mean, this is recent. Like everybody's dealing with this, all the package repositories, like all the big ones. And I'm sure you guys have been having discussions in, internally about NPM as well, right? With everyone that's there that works on it. You know, since um, we own NPM yeah. or acquired them, yes. Acquired them, yes. Um, but so basically you're saying that there's a way within Bundler, in this case, to specify where it should be pulling specific packages. Yeah. Do you mind if I share my screen to show that a little bit more? Let's do it. Let's let's do it. Because I think that would be an interesting, yeah, I mean, that's an interesting okay. path to go down. Yep. And I think I'm also going to um, pull up uh, RailsGoat, believe it or not, uh, on GitHub to uh, show the, the um, just real quick what that, what that looks like. Okay. okay. How do I do this? Share my screen. All right. No, fine, no, no, here no. we go. This is what you'd be doing. All right. So if I open up another tab here, can you see me opening up another tab? Yep. Okay. I don't mean to do exactly handouts. That's not the one. Uh, OWASP. OWASP Rails Go. All right. And there's a lot of... Okay. So if I go into the gem file of this, this is like traditionally what you might see. Um, so you've got your source for Ruby gems, right? Now... This line right here, you could have multiple sources. And I mean, this is not for you, Zach. Uh, I almost called that. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just go ahead. I'm Zach, Zach now. Yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. I know. Uh, cool. Right. So, um, upgrade. Awesome. Uh, yeah. So, so, anyways, you could have multiple sources here. And that's where, you know, maybe Aruba doesn't exist anymore on this one. And in, 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 on this line two, maybe there's a source on line three that now it's going to call out for it because it's like, hey, I'm confused. Uh, Aruba is not in this first source. I'll go look somewhere else. So that's a typical gem file, right? You've got all your gems. No, notice um, you do have the ability to lock to a specific version. And you do have the ability to say whether it's in the development, prod, test, 
uh, staging, whatever environment, right? That's what the group here block is. So when I say block, this is the it's saying, here's some direction, here's the end of that direction, and then there's stuff that goes on in between, right? So same principle applies when we look at it over here. So you can say, um, here is my, uh, sure, I've got a source for Ruby gems, but listen, for my private server, this is, this is the, these are the gems I want you to pull from. And you could do, you know, in theory, the same thing, not in theory, you could do the same thing here. You could say source Ruby gems do, and then put your, your source there. So you have a very specific, there's no confusion as to where it needs to go. So that's one way that people can protect themselves is again, for this server, this source server, get these gems. It's, it's super simple. It's, it's incredibly simple. Um, so that's one way, but the other way that they uh, talk about that they've actually, oh, sorry, not diligent IO, defend.io uh, would be the one. So they used this site and it actually flagged the um, package that was the proof of concept from Alex to, uh, yeah, to say it's malicious. So anyways, uh, I'm not going to continue. I'm gonna, all right. Anyways, some, some site worked with them. That's awesome. Cool. All right. So cool. hopefully that explains a little bit what I was talking about, or it what we were, does. What we were talking. And I was trying. I was trying. No, no. And and I, I was trying to look up. There was a. Dang it! Somebody wrote a tool on GitHub, and this came in last week, and I can't remember what it what it was. Um, crappy. I'm I, I'm failing here. Um, but there was a there. There's a tool that. Uh, somebody wrote to tell you whether or not your packages were vulnerable to dependency confusion, um, just based on the packages file. Um, oh, I've seen that. Uh, have you tried running or anything? I haven't had a chance. Oh, it's just called confused. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> Visma Prods. Man, keep I'll, it I'll post it up there. Yeah, exactly. You got to love all the... Um, all of the application security people that were super just direct. This is what this is, right? Yeah. Um, that's the one I was looking at uh, recently within the last week. Uh, so uh, that's all it does is it goes through this, you know, it's a go pro go. Yeah. Program. Yeah. Just basically goes and looks at requirements.txt and says, Hey, this looks like it could be something interesting. And it, he refers back to Alex's article there too. Yeah. So, yeah. Actually, we've seen, so we've seen lots of uh, bounty. I was, well, not lots. I should say I've seen a, a couple bounty submissions though, too, that reference now. It, this is, you can pretty much guarantee, man, like this is the cycle. Someone yep. does something like, and th the research was really great. So don't let me downplay. I'm not downplaying. The research was great, but they're, it's essentially repackaging something that, you know, we've all, I assume we've all known about, but some of us are very familiar with. It's not a new thing. But anyways, great job. I do not want to diminish that. But this is what happens. It gets packaged up, whatever the attack is. It's given a website. It's given a little bit of uh, attention, which is, again, a good thing for us in the security for awareness. And then uh, the next thing I know, there's always like bounty submissions that just follow that. So it, and you basically almost have to keep on top of it just so that you can like get ahead of the bounty submissions that are going to come in from it. It's an interesting... Yeah sort of side effect that occurs, I guess. <laughs> well, I, I mean, the other interesting thing on this too is they've, 
Well, I, yeah, I mean, it's the cycle, but they, they will refer directly back to those medium articles and other things in the bounty submissions. I've seen that uh, as well. Yes, right? that's what's happening. Yes. <laughs> you could just do a search in your, your bounty management console of choice for these people, the author's names and it, or whatever. Yeah. I mean, in this case, medium. So the author's names in there and it'll pop up. You'll get your, you'll get results of people referencing it already to your, yeah. to your point. So, yeah. Yeah. But this, I mean, again, I like, I, I dig that somebody wrote confused, right? Like this is, this was super smart. Um, Cause this is a product that you could drop directly into your, you know, CICD pipeline. And so you would know, Oh crap! There's an issue here, right? Um, right. That you that we didn't think about the packages. We didn't think about this in this this upcoming release, and you know, catch it be, before it becomes an issue. I don't know how many people will actually go ahead and do that, um, but I would fully expect Sneak and some of those other commercial vendors to start doing this as well, um, as you know, just as a an added you know added value. Um, you know, come on, dependency bot, right? Right. Yeah. Thing, yes. Yeah. Yes. Dependabot. Dependabot. There you go. Sorry. My bad. Oh, no, no, no. Depend- there's Dependabot. There's dependency graph. There's all kinds of, there's all yeah. dependa things. Dependa, dependa things. things. Yeah. Client sidey dependa things. Yep. And then, yeah. And they'll get there, right? Like that's, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So that, that's dependency confusion. Um, that's why it's an issue. You've got to be careful of, you know, about where you're importing stuff from. I like, I don't know. I look at this and it just makes me laugh. Cause I remember the days when like uh, Linux, uh, you know, update repositories had the same issues, right. You know, yeah. every time that, you know, the Debian repos get, hacked or somebody figures out that they can put a package in there, but it's the same pathway of I'm loading content into your servers and I'm doing it through, you know, this trust boundary that we have. It's not a, it's not a new issue. It's just, it's presented itself again in places that we, you know, we didn't ever think it was going to be a problem. I don't know if we, we didn't say that or say that it would never be a problem. I think it's just the more popular any technology becomes, the more eyes that are on it, the vulnerabilities, like there's nothing new under the sun, right? Whatever you want to say there. Yeah. Like I remember Jerry gambling going hard in the paint on uh, Docker images and, and the same thing of like injecting, like detecting not just malicious, but malicious was part of it, but also like outdated and insecure images for Docker. So it's like, like you said, a new, a new technology comes out, same sort of idea and just manifests in a different way. And there's a bunch of research and it's awesome and it's cyclical and uh, repeating and forever ongoing. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so it's not nihilism. It's just a awareness that it is a, um, it's a reality. You know, it's funny. I was actually just watching this. Um, I was watching a, uh, oh man, I think it was uh, Lex Friedman talking about, um, Michael Malice and his, his idea of uh, the white pill, which is, you know, red, red pill, blue pill. One's like cynicism and one is optimism. And there is Uh a ground in between those two, which is like, no, I totally see the world as it is. And I totally understand the way that it is, but there is still room to improve that. And I think that that's sort of the idea with security is like, we're, I, if you're not a realist, you're in the wrong field because you have to be realistic about, you know, and, and cynical about, you know, everything really. But uh, it doesn't mean you, you can't be also optimistic about building in solutions uh, for the future that, um, 
prevent the cycle from repeating. So, yep. Yep. Well, and uh, I mean, this goes back I, I, actually to the discussion we had last week with um, Brian as well. Uh, the fact that all of this research for these vulnerabilities and the names that they gave them in the sixties and seventies, right. We give them new vulnerable, we give them new names and we give them, you know, new websites nowadays, but mm -hmm. it's all the same issue. Right. So what we're talking about here is a modified confused deputy problem, right. That's, that's all that it is. Um, we're running code within the, the context of, you know, uh, one application and we don't realize that it, you know, it shouldn't have the privileges that it does. That's, that's all that we're doing. Um, yeah. And this, they identified this as an issue, you know, in the sixties, right. You know, but, which it was, you know, is uh, well, starting up a program with it, with the wrong authentication or authorization level or, you know, yeah, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Right. Do you know what's so spooky about this, Seth? Is uh, literally yesterday, Greg Osa, my my boss, uh -huh. he he was just espousing that we need to start referring to this as a confused deputy problem because people, uh, engineers, like everybody, everybody can remember because, like you said, this this concept has been out forever. Like this is the term that we need to be using is more like. And I think he was, he had a broader point, which was like that maybe we didn't explore as much yet, but I think the, the broader point is to use um, terminology that's, it, all of this terminology has been around forever. Use it, use what people know to explain things and give awareness because then it's like, oh, that's, you know, dependency confusion. Okay, cool. Conf, you know, confused deputy. Oh, everybody understands that. Most people yeah. understand that in, a, in, in, a, in the tech world, you know, so. Yeah. Well, and okay, again, this goes this goes back to the discussion we had about the OWASP top ten last week as well, right? Like, and I know we're getting away from client side security here a little bit, but um, it's hard to maintain kind of this um, this body of thought and this um, like these concepts if we don't if we don't maintain the language around them. Right. If every time we find a new vulnerability, we brand it as something different. And I think this is what Greg is probably going into there. If we brand it something different, we lose all of that tribal knowledge that we had about confused deputy issues and everything that we did back in the day with, you know, the repositories for Debian and the Linux systems and, you know, how GitHub handles or Git handles confused deputies or how like whatever you know, even if we go back to the old mainframe code, how it handled confused deputies when you have like the different rings of trust, um, there, there's there's ways that we've gone about solving these problems. And if we call it something different, we're not, we're basically having to reinvent those ways in a, you know, in new technologies rather than referring back to the expertise that we already have. Um, so well, yeah, there's not, you know, to your point, at GitHub, we have been doing a lot more self-service threat models, meaning we have the engineers do the threat modeling. We've, they've even been using both ThreatDragon and Draw.io. Draw.io. I.O. Oh, my God. But like um, we I've seen actually more than one now, probably three, where the threat where the developers using ThreatDragon. But anyways, ThreatDragon has Stride inside of it. And say yep. what you want about Stride. I know everybody's got different. People have opinions, of course they do. But one thing interesting that I noticed, and like I didn't really think about it too much until what you just said, but like what's interesting is when entering a threat, the words themselves make sense to a developer, like tampering. That's obvious. Yeah. That's obvious to anybody. You're tampering. 
repudiation. I can understand that. The, yeah. It's funny the simplicity in that that naming convention that it that even just connecting the threat to that word and that concept is very easy. And I watched people with no real formal training in threat model modeling do a really great job of threat modeling. So in, interesting side note there. Yeah, yeah. I, I, well, and that's it, right? Like Stride's been around for a long time. Microsoft did that research, you know, years and years ago. Uh, but we still, there's a reason that we still use it because it is self-explanatory when it comes down to dealing with people, right? Like confused deputy, like once somebody understands what that is, it, it stays within their, it, yeah, it, it just sticks with them, right? So anyway. Yeah, well, uh, we're getting cool, uh, the end <laughs> yeah, of the show. The We've show. covered, <laughs> I feel like a lot. <laughs> Man, what a day. We have uh, yeah, exactly. like been uh, a lot been, covered today. Yeah, it has. We've gone everywhere from, you know, JavaScript, third-party client-side security to you know, <laughs> malware on Macs to dependency confusion. Yeah. Um yeah, I don't I don't know if there's a there's an easy way to put a bow on everything that we've talked about. Maybe, you know, I don't know. I always go back to this this whole concept of you know don't trust your users or don't trust anything outside of the realm that you're currently in um, when you're trying to program. I, yeah, you just got to be aware of those boundaries exist. What is it? Lee, Lee, Lee mentioned Microsoft has a threat modeling card game, so that's awesome. Yeah, yes, he, they do. Says the guy who works for. Microsoft and is supposed to be doing threat models. So that's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) That's the elevation of privilege, right? Yeah. Threat modeling card game. You could download it. Let me see. Uh, Yeah. I'm trying to find a link. Yeah. Here. Oh yeah. You know what? Have we talked about this? I think maybe we do it. I don't know. Who knows? But this is awesome. Thank you for putting that in there because we should share this. Yep. Somebody's actually printed it out. And it's all based on Stride too. Right? So it's a good one to have. If you're all sitting in the same room, but none of us are anymore. But I think there are even implementations that are um, mobile apps. If I remember right. Oh, we'll have to dig it up. We'll, we'll, we'll bring that one back up next week because I think that would be an interesting one. We should play a threat modeling. Yeah, they were checking them out at RSA years ago. Yeah. Yep. Um, cool. So yeah, there's not really a bow to put on anything, right? Um, yeah. Thanks everybody. And cynical. There you go. The optimistic and cynical glass, half full glass, half empty at the same time. There is no glass. (laughs) (laughs) Magic. Yeah. Um, all right. Yeah. I, th- I think we'll just see everybody next week, right? If, as, as always, if you've got questions, if you want to join the conversation, join our Slack channel, um, hit us up on Twitter. Uh, we're on the inter- internets at some point. And yeah. we'd love to talk, obviously, right? That's, that's why we do this. So um, any final thoughts, Ken? No, I just love it. Actually, yes. I, I appreciate all of the like interactions and folks that are, tuned into the podcast, uh, especially live, it makes it so much more fun. So, um, you know, I obviously appreciate everyone that listens, but especially for those folks that are live, I think what we might end up doing is actually 
putting together some gifts for people that are live and randomly like just, you know, getting people who are participating's information and, or, and, you know, dishing something out in the future, just as a thank you for, cause it really makes this whole thing easier. So thank you, seriously. Yeah. Really. We appreciate it. You don't know how much we appreciate it, but we really do like a lot. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we'll do a giveaway or a drawing or something next week. Right. That'd be cool. Um, it, yeah, it, it does. And, and it's not just us wanting to dox you. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. That always comes up. Yep, yeah. It always does. So now I have a cool. box right here of stuff to give away. So anyways, All right. cool. Well, good deal. Thanks yes, for the conversation swag. today, Ken. Yes. Swag. Thank you. Say swag, 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 swag. There you go. Swag, swag, swag. Yeah. I've got plenty of swag. So if you, uh, Actually, for uh, Derek and Lee, if you want swag, uh, send your info to absoluteabsec at gmail.com and I'll send you some swag. Yeah. Yep, do it. And uh, your t-shirt, preferred t-shirt sizes. Yeah. Sweet. All right. Well, thanks everybody again for joining today and we'll see everybody online. All right. Thank you. Have a good one.